Kelly often serves as editor for my sermons, check my grammar, uh, the wording, make sure something is clear, people can understand it. And every so often, she'll, as she reads through it, she'll finish and say, Woo, it's a tough message. Be sure to tell the people God loves them and you love them too. So before we get started there, I just want to kind of reiterate to you, I love you and God loves you too. And, and, and let me say about that, about, share a minute about my heart about that. I, I mean it when I say that that's not just something I, I say or just something I'm supposed to say. I, I love the people who make up the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. Uh, I've grown up in church. I have been in church all my life. And since I answered the call to preach, I already knew a lot of pastors. And I know a lot of pastors now. And through the years, I have known many pastors who, who through their conduct or through their wording, maybe through their attitude, communicated either to us as the church or to me as another preacher, that their church was sort of a, a burden for them to bear, that that in the church where they served, there were two groups of people. There was the pastor and there were the people. And they were always at odds with one another. And I can honestly say that is not the way I feel. And that is not the way I have ever felt regarding this church. When I first answered the call to pastor, as opposed to being a youth pastor, Kelly and I prayed that we would go wherever God wanted us to go. But one thing we asked was God would make us want to be where we were. So our April 15th, 2002, we left here after our very first weekend here. I got back to um, Muskogee, went in and took our, our tax stuff and dropped it off at the, the post office. And while I was gone, all I could think about was I wondered what you folks were doing. When I got back, I asked Kelly, I said, what were you thinking about? And she said, well, I was wondering what the people in Guyman were doing. What were you thinking about? And we knew this was where we wanted to be. We just needed y'all to make the right decision and vote the way we were clear God wanted you to vote and to bring us out here. Uh, and our our want to be here has never changed. I, in 18 years, I have had multiple opportunities to go and apply for other churches. I, I've never so much as sent a resume to another church. One guy called and said, just come out and visit don't even preach. Just come look at the church and see the community and bring your family for a day out and we'll take you to a nice place to eat. And I told him, I said, I, that would be a waste of our time and a waste of your money because we are where God wants us to be and we are where God and where we want to be. And my love for our church is part of what motivates me to preach the way I preach. Now, I am naturally a loud guy, which may come as a surprise to some. Uh, I am naturally loud. A common occurrence in my life is for me to say something or to laugh in such a way that causes those around to say, Whew, that was really, really loud. Uh, and that carries over into my preaching. Uh, but I'm also passionate. Some things I, I don't care about, but things I'm passionate about, I'm intense about when I talk about them. And I am passionate about Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus is God who came to earth, uh, took on human flesh, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again on the third day. I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one will go to heaven apart from repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus Christ, that those who reject Jesus, 
they will face the full force of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now, there's no way I could believe that and not be passionate about it. I also believe in the church of Jesus Christ. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world because the church and really the church alone takes the message of Jesus to a lost and a dying world. The message of Jesus is the message the world needs more than anything else on earth. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is the greatest force for good the world has ever known. Not only does the church take the gospel and save souls and change lives and make a, an eternal difference in people's lives, but when you look at church history, every major good thing in a culture that largely came about by the church. Why were orphanages named after saints? Why were hospitals named after saints? That wasn't just a cool thing. It was the church that founded orphanages. It was the church that founded hospitals. It was the church that fed the poor. It was the church that came up with homeless missions. It was the church. And when the church of God obeys the word of God, it will do more good than any politician, political party, or any other organization on the face of the earth. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is the greatest agent for change in the world because it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is able to make real changes in a person, a community, and the world. Not external changes only, not in their appearance or how they talk, but in their heart and who they are down to the very core of their being. The church the Holy Spirit working through the church changes people to they are new creations in Christ Jesus. And I believe God wants our church to be a part of what he is doing in the world to make disciples of all nations. And there's no way I could believe that and not be passionate about it. Now, the church in Acts and the early church after Acts understood they were a part of what God was doing to redeem the world. And they gave everything in their lives to make this happen. They willingly sacrificed their comforts, their fortunes, and in some cases their very lives to ensure the church was making disciples of all nations. The commitment they had to the church and the mission Jesus gave the church is one of the reasons the church went from 120 disciples on the day of Pentecost to being an enormous body of believers spanning the globe. The reason you and I are here today and have had the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved is because the early church took the commission to make disciples of all nations very seriously. Had they not, it would never have spread beyond Jerusalem, Judea or Samaria, but it did. It spread from there to Guymon, Oklahoma, to Pickett, Oklahoma, to wherever you're from, if you're not from here, and gave us an opportunity to hear the gospel Believe on Jesus and be saved. Now, this mission of making disciples of all nations that Jesus gave to the church, it is the very same mission we have in our lives and for our church today. The, the mission that the early church lived and died and sacrificed for is the very same mission given to us in our day right here, right now. Making disciples of all nations is why not just the church exists, but why Northridge Free Will Baptist Church 
exists. And the reality is, this is the mission of the church. And a church not seeking to fulfill the mission of making disciples of all nations cannot rightly be called a church, a social club, a moral center, a community center, a country club, sure, but not a church. If they are not actively seeking to make disciples of all nations, regardless of anything else they do, they are essentially useless for the kingdom. Now, that may sound harsh. And this is the point where some would say, well, Jesus would never make such harsh statements. Jesus was always kind and gentle, and he never said hard things. But I reject that idea. I believe Jesus would say exactly this sort of thing. In fact, I believe Jesus would make much stronger statements than this. But we don't have to take my word for it. I want you to open your Bible to Revelation 1, verse 11. It's the only verse, the only verse we're going to start with today. It should be on page 949 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Revelation 1 and 11. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Title of the message this morning is Letters to the Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We thank you. Father, we are thankful. The church took the mission of making disciples of all nations seriously. We are thankful it spread from Jerusalem to America, from America to Oklahoma, from Oklahoma to Guymon and to Pickett and to every place in between, giving us the precious opportunity to hear The good news of great joy that a Savior had come and a Savior had died. We thank you for the Spirit empowering those witnesses who came. The Spirit who convicted us of our sin, of our unrighteousness and of the judgment to come. The Spirit who led us to the place where we would cry out to Jesus, Be merciful unto me a sinner. Thankful for the Spirit who caused us to be born again. Once we had repented and believed. Thankful for the Spirit that indwells us and empowers us. And is here today working to strengthen us and sanctify us and make us ever more like Jesus, our Savior. Father, we're here today because we want to be your church who does your will in the world. We surrender ourselves as a church To do whatever you want us to do to make disciples of all nations. To do whatever you want us to do to ensure we can proclaim your glory to the ends of the earth. Father, to that end, you you change what needs to be changed. To that end, you convict what needs to be convicted. To that end, you encourage what needs to be encouraged. And you strengthen what needs to be strengthened. And you... Call us and you raise us and you send us to do your will to the ends of the earth. Father, let what we do here have an eternal impact upon places we don't even know exist at this moment in our lives. 
guide us today and throughout this series on the seven churches to have ears to hear what your spirit is going to say to us in this time. Make us tender. Make our hearts ready. Make us a people who will surrender all things to you to do your will in the world. Fill me with your spirit today. And give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or done. But just to be your servant who speaks your word clearly and accurately and faithfully. Have your way in all of our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now today we're going to, in our series in Revelation, we're hitting the part where we're moving into the, the letters to the seven churches. We were initially just going to move straight into Ephesus, but as I began to write some, some general thoughts about the seven churches, that it really grew too long to be a part of any one message, and so it had to become a message all of its own. As we get to the, the letters Jesus sends to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there are several facts about the seven churches we need to know. Um, I, I'm not going to put the, the points up on the screen. It would take too long. But you can. I think they should be easy enough to remember. One is, these were real churches in real places at a real moment in time. Right? As we look at these churches... These were very real churches in a very specific place, and they had very real problems. Right? What is written in Revelation 2 and 3 it is not meant to be taken symbolically. Right? It, there is no time in which every church of the generation had the same problems of one church. Right? So there is no Ephesian church age in which every church had a problem loving Jesus like they should. And there is no Laodicean church age where every church is lukewarm in their service and their devotion to Jesus. Rather, Jesus sent actual letters to actual church dealing with actual issues, seeking to correct their problems so they would serve him and they would work on making disciples of all nations. A second truth about the seven letters is they all follow the same basic outline. When we get to the seven letters, we're going to find that each church or each letter follows the same outline. First, there is a, a revelation of the character of Jesus. Every church, every letter starts with some nugget about the revelation of the character of Jesus. Who he is, what he's like, how he acts in the world. Now, typically, what Jesus reveals about himself to that letter or to that church, will bear weight upon the issues they're dealing with that he talks to them about later in the church, later in the letter. There's the character of Jesus, and there is commendation from Jesus. right? With only two exceptions, Sardis and Laodicea, Jesus begins the letter by telling the churches what they're doing well, commending them. I, I know your labor, I know your patience, I see what you're doing. And he commends them for what they're doing well. Now, just a great thing to know. Jesus sees what we do. He knows our labor for his name. Then after commendation from the church, from Jesus, there is correction from Jesus. And with only two exceptions, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus moves from commendation to correction. And in this section, Jesus begins to state to the church, I know you've done these things well, but I still have something against you. Here are the things you're not doing well. Now, sometimes the correction is more mild 
Other times it is a very stiff and a very strong rebuke. Why does Jesus rebuke these churches? Because Jesus wants a church that will seek to fulfill the mission of making disciples of all nations. And he knows a church not seeking to fulfill that cannot rightly be called a church. And he wants to purify it. So anything holding them back can be laid aside so they can make disciples of all nations. Now something interesting to note here. The churches which receive all commendation and no correction, and all correction and no commendation, aren't necessarily what we may expect. The churches which receive all commendation, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are churches in the midst of deep suffering because of their faith in Jesus. Smyrna is said to be poverty stricken. Philadelphia is said to have little strength. Despite their suffering, despite their poverty, despite their little strength, they are remaining faithful. The churches which receive no commendation, only correction, Sardis and Laodicea, aren't corrected for what you might imagine. Neither one is corrected for any sort of deep immorality which has taken root in the church. Now, other churches which receive correction have immorality in their midst, but there's no indication of that in Sardis and in Laodicea. Rather, Sardis receives all correction and no commendation because they have a reputation for being alive, but they're actually quite dead. Laodicea receives all correction and no commendation because they are not hot nor cold. They are just lukewarm. So this is a reminder of something we'll see throughout the seven churches is Jesus doesn't necessarily see the things we see or see things the way we see them or value what our world values. For instance, Smyrna is poverty stricken, but they receive nothing but praise. Laodicea is rich and increased in goods financially, and they receive nothing but correction. What our world values and what Jesus values are not necessarily the same thing. So there is character of Jesus, commendation from Jesus, correction from Jesus, and then counsel from Jesus. Jesus doesn't just say these things are wrong. He says, here's how you go about fixing them. He gives them practical steps to what to do to correct the error which has taken root in their church. Then there is a call to the church. And the church, every letter contains a call to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Jesus wants them to, to listen, to take heed to what He's saying through the Spirit and through the Word. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. And then there's a challenge to the church. After correcting and or commending and correcting and challenging them or calling on them, Jesus challenges them to overcome the issues He's raised. The challenge to overcome is always accompanied by a promise for those who do overcome and an implied judgment or a clearly stated judgment for those who do not overcome. So the letters all follow that same basic outline. Thirdly, Jesus is uniquely qualified to give these messages. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with garments to the foot, and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. John turns to hear who is saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Write what you see. 
And he turns and he sees Jesus standing in the midst of seven candlesticks or lampstands, depending on what translation you have. Well, what does it mean Jesus is standing in the midst of these candlesticks? Well, look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars, the angel of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So the candlesticks or the lampstands represent the churches. Now look at verse 16. And he had in his right hand the seven stars. Now look down at verse 20 again. And the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So the candlesticks represent the churches, the angels represent, or the, the stars represent the angels of the church. Now, it is highly unlikely Angels there is meant to be taken literally as in literal angels. Right? And there are a couple of reasons for this. First, the word translated as angels could very literally be translated as messenger. And while messengers or while angels are messengers from God, angels, angels are not the only people used as messengers for God. In fact, the word translated as angels here is used for human messengers in other places in the New Testament. Second, all seven letters are addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, of Laodicea. And the implication is the angel is meant to, to lead the church to correct the errors that Jesus talks to them about. And so here's where we get into an issue with messengers being angels. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere else in Scripture, do we see any sort of an idea angels have any sort of influence on the day-to-day -day activities of the church. We're not given anything else in Scripture, anywhere else, to show that angels influence what a church is or what a church does. So the better understanding of angel here is not angel, but messenger. The messenger of the church. John is going to write these letters down. And through a person, he is going to give those letters to someone who is going to leave Patmos and he is going to go to Ephesus and he is going to give that letter to a human, the messenger in Ephesus. And most likely, messenger then would be either the pastor or the elders of the church. Now, there are a couple of impl implications of this uh, for our day. The first is, in a big way, Jesus holds the pastor, the elders, somewhat accountable for what a church is and what a church does. The pastor is some ways accountable to Jesus for the health and the welfare of the church he pastors. One passage that weighs heavily upon this pastor is Hebrews 13 and 17. To the people, the author says, obey them that have rule over you. Submit yourselves to them. He's talking about the pastors. Why? For they watch over your souls as they that must give an account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief, for this is unprofitable for you. See, the day will come when I stand before Jesus and give an account for my life. How I've lived and what I've done. And according to Hebrews 13 and 17, part of what I will give an account for is you, your soul. Not so much your soul, meaning everything you do wrong, I'm going to catch the heat for it. But more your soul in 
Did I do everything I could to make sure your soul was healthy? Did I do all I could to shepherd your soul to Jesus? Did I feed the flock entrusted to my care? Did I care for your soul in the way Jesus intended for me to? That's pretty weighty to consider. Pretty weighty when you're the one that's supposed to give that account for the people who have entered into your church building. Now the second implication of this is something most of you already know. Your pastor is indeed an angel. Now what all of this means to us is Jesus is in the midst of his church. Personally involved in the activities. Verse 13, he is in the midst of the church. Revelation 2 and 1, he walks in the midst of the church. He holds the pastor in his hands. Because Jesus is here with us in our midst. And because he is the head of the church. Jesus and and Jesus alone can accurately inspect each church and each person who makes up the church and know its true condition. He can do this because Jesus and Jesus alone not only sees the externals, not only sees the the image we promote to the community and to one another, but He sees what's in our hearts. And so He is capable of being a faithful witness And dealing with us about what needs to be dealt with. Also, these letters are very practical in nature. So we get into them, we're going to find the issues Jesus deals with with the seven churches have not been left in the history of the church. They are just as familiar in our day as they were in the day in which they were initially written. These letters deal with the sort of practical real world issues we face. Do I love Jesus as I should? Does the way I deal with suffering and pressure glorify Jesus? Am I being influenced by false teachers? Do I spend more time searching for deeper or hidden truth than I do studying the plain word of God? Do I have a reputation of devotion to Jesus, but the reality of my inner life is something far different? Do I feel spiritually weak in the face of temptations and suffering? Am I lukewarm? And loving it in my life. While these letters were written to specific churches in a specific time. They speak to every church of every generation. For two reasons. One, the word of God is alive. God's word is alive. The author of Hebrews reminds us God's the word of God is quick, living and powerful. Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing Even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit joints and marrows discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's word is alive. It's pictured as a two-edged sword which cuts and divides soul and spirit joints and marrow. Is a discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now that discern of the thoughts and the intents of the heart means God's word will not only deal with us about our outward actions. But also about our inward attitudes. Not only about what we do, but but why we do it. God's word is to is able to go beyond the the outer, the 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 image we project, what other people may see and deal with the things going on way deep down 
inside of us. Our values, our priorities, our motives, our attitudes, even the things we think but never say. God's word will deal with us about this. How? Because there is no creature that is not manifest in God's sight. But all things are naked and open into the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. God's word can do this because nothing or no one is hidden from God's sight. God knows our attitudes as well as our actions. He knows the thoughts we think as clearly as the words we say. He knows our values and our priorities. He knows everything which is going on in here, no matter what it looks like out here. And He is then able to take His Word, to speak it into our lives in whatever way we need in a given moment. Is there a sin we need to be convicted about? God will use His Word and convict us. Are we discouraged and need of encouragement? God can use his God will use his word to speak encouragement. Do we need guidance about something in our lives? God will speak through his word and guide us in our lives. Is there a change we need to make? God will speak through his word and show us this is wrong and this is the way. Whatever the need or whatever the circumstance, God can and God will speak to it through his word because his word is living and active. It is unlike any other book in the history of the world. But not only is God's word alive, but the Holy Spirit speaks. Throughout the seven churches, the letters of the seven churches, we're going to find this being said. Revelation 2 and 7. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation 2 and 11. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, saith unto the churches. Revelation 2.17, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation 2.29, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Revelation 3 and 6, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation 3 and 13, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And Revelation 3 and 22, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. The repetition is God's way of saying, pay attention. This matters. This is important. And the idea of having ears to hear in so many ways is just wanting to hear. Or being willing to hear. This is one of the reasons we're studying the book of Revelation right now. This phrase... He that has ears to hear, let him hear. The Spirit is saying, the church. Think about everything we've experienced in the last 12 months. I mean, you think about it. Every year is different. But wouldn't we say that the world a year ago, the fourth Sunday of January 2020, was different than the world we live in now? I mean, there's been some dramatic things happen in our country, in our world. Doesn't it seem through this, God is, is screaming at us. Pay attention. Listen. It does to me. And I want to hear what He's saying to the churches in this hour. And a part of what Jesus is saying in these verses is those who want to hear what the Spirit is saying will hear what the Spirit is saying. So who are those who, who want to hear? Well, those who are serious 
about it. You know, when you look at the, the life of Jesus, he told parables so that those who were only playing games would not really understand what he was saying and what he was meaning. So someone who's not serious about hearing what the Spirit is saying to the church is not going to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. If it's a game, if it's just something we're doing because we're bored on this particular day, we won't hear, but we have to be serious about it. But not just are serious about it, but are willing to hear and obey. Every letter Jesus gives to the church, there is something to do. There's not charts to look at and think, wow, that's cool. There are changes which need to be made, actions which need to be taken. If we want to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, we need to have ears to hear and hearts that will obey and do whatever He's calling on us to do. Those who are serious about or concerned about the mission Jesus has given the church. The mission of making disciples of all nations. Just make no mistake. Everything Jesus does in, through, and for a local church is to equip them to go and make disciples of all nations. He is not as concerned about our comfort and our preferences and our politics and our issues As we may think he is. He is very concerned though. About ensuring this gospel. Is preached. To all nations. As a witness to them. And then the end will come. So what he is going to say. What he is going to do. Will be to better equip us. To be a part of making disciples of all nations. And those who want to hear are those. Who want to live their lives in total devotion to Jesus. When you look at the life of Jesus. He frequently thinned the herd. Great crowds would follow him and he would say. Oh you want to be my disciple? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they would say. That's crazy talk. And they would turn to go. And he would change absolutely nothing about what he said. He would instead look at the twelve and say, are you going to go too? Crowds would come and he would say, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. People would come and say, Master, I want to go with you. And he would say, foxes have holes. But I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Master, I'll I'll follow you, but first let me bury my father. And he would say, let the dead bury their own dead, but you follow me. Jesus was never interested in half-hearted followers. He wanted people who were fully devoted to him, to his commission, to his mission. Those who want to live their lives in total devotion to Jesus will hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches right now. And I believe there is right now a desperate need. For disciples of Jesus to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We need to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches so we can be like the children of Ishakar. Said they were people who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. First Chronicles twelve and thirty two. There is a need, a desperate need in this hour for disciples of Jesus to to understand the times we're living in. 
and to know what needs to be done. And then finally, we have to work through these letters together. As we go through these letters, we have to understand what we're seeing and what we're hearing is meant for us as a church and for us as individuals. And we have to study them from both perspectives. We look at them as a church because they aren't seven letters to the seven individuals of Asia, but to the seven churches. In fact, the reality is God's word is never written merely from or for the individual perspective. Faith community is important all throughout God's word. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it is the church of Jesus Christ. The idea of a Lone Ranger Christian or a me and Jesus mindset is nowhere to be found in God's word. If we only consider the me perspective and not the we perspective, we will miss a huge amount of what God is trying to say to us in his word. But we do also have to look at it from the perspective of an individual. Because there is no nebulous entity called the church. Instead, there are people who make up the church. And whatever a church is or whatever a church isn't is merely a reflection of the people who make up the church. So as we look at these seven churches, we're not to look at it and merely think, well, which church is the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church most like? We must also ask, which of these issues do I struggle with? And what can I do to overcome them? Because whatever the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church is or is not, it is or is not because of us. If we are a church that has lost our first love, it is because you and I have lost our first love. If we are a church that has a reputation for being alive and yet we are dead, it is because you and I as individuals have a reputation for being alive and yet are dead. If our church is lukewarm, it is because you and I as individuals are lukewarm. Whatever our church is or is not, it is a reflection of those of us who make up the church. We have to work on it together. And it has to be work. Because something I've discovered in my life is this. Nothing ever changes without someone making intentional effort to do what needs to be done to make those changes. Nothing changes because we wish it would change. Nothing changes because we lay in bed at night and dream about how different things would be. Things change when we respond to God's word and do what needs to be done. We take intentional effort. Has any, just think about in your life. Issues, because you, you probably have issues in your life, things you wish were different. Do those things ever just get better on their own? Does wishing they were different, daydreaming about them being different, has any of those ever produced any sort of intentional change, any sort of legitimate change in your life? When did change happen? How did change occur? You took forth intentional effort to do what needed to be done to make those changes. It would be the same in our church when Jesus reveals these issues to us. Issues for you as an individual, me as an individual, us as a church. 
There is only one way things will be different. And that is if we work together to make intentional effort to do what needs to be done to make those changes. We have to be committed and work and work hard together to make these changes. Nothing will change because we gripe about it. Nothing will change because we wish about it. Nothing will change because we dream about it. It will only change because we were committed, we get involved, and we work for change. If we are going to be the church Jesus intends for us to be, if we are going to be the disciples Jesus intends for us to be, we have to work. We have to work together. We have to be willing to do whatever needs to be done. And make no mistake, whatever He does in us, whatever He does for us, whatever He does through us in the coming weeks, it will be to the end result we will be better equipped to make disciples of all nations. That is the end goal of whatever He's doing in our midst. We have to work together. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. We have to do it together. So what is the future of our church? Where do we find ourselves? Do we need to repent of something we already know is an issue? Chances are every one of us here has read through the seven letters at least once. We're familiar with some of the concepts there. Are we already aware of something in our hearts, in our lives, from what we see and what we know to be there? Do we need to strengthen our faith? Prepare ourselves for what Jesus is going to do? Have we as a church gotten complacent? And are now in danger of no longer being a church? Because we aren't actively working to make disciples of all nations. Are we asleep? And do we need to wake up? Are we lukewarm? And do we need to be hot or cold? Do we have a reputation for being alive? And really though we're dead and we need to wake up and get back to it. Do we need to open the door and invite Jesus in? These are the issues we're going to have to wrestle with in the coming weeks. So I'll close with this. Imagine you go to the doctor and he tells you you need a major surgery. You've met the surgeon, you know the qualifications, you know the surgery is necessary. But still, you worry. We're on edge about going under the knife and all the things that are a part of that. What do we do? Well, we make absolutely sure we're ready for whatever may come. Make sure our family is ready for whatever may come. We make sure we've prayed and we're prayed up. And then we go for the surgery because it's necessary. We as the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church in many ways are about to go under the knife. Jesus loves us. Jesus is qualified to do what needs to be done. We trust Him, but we still need to make ourselves ready for what lies ahead. Our prayer in the coming weeks should not be for God to judge or skip over my issues. That's a, an easy prayer, but it's really a cowardly prayer. Our prayer should be instead for Jesus to take the sword of the Word 
And to use it to cut away whatever cancerous tissue is in our lives. In our church. So he would work in us and through us and for us to make us the church he wants us to be. So we can make disciples of all nations. So as we come to this time of response, I am going to ask you to stand. We're not going to have any music. I don't want there to be any distractions, just the silence. And in this time of of silence, in the still, small voice of God, pray and ask to have ears to hear. Ask God to make sure your heart is surrendered and prepared. Ask God to cut away whatever spiritual cancer is in in your life and in our church. And this is important. Do it this way. Personally and the church. Don't say, God, you know Stacy. He's got these issues. Cut that away from him. This isn't the time to pray for God to do it in me. This is the time for God to pray, you to pray God would do it in you. I'll pray for God to do it in me. And then we pray for the church as a whole. Let's pray.